Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle, which is coming right up. But first, a few thoughts of my own. I'm not against machines. I rather like machines. The bigger they are, the better. I love big old-fashioned steam railway locomotives, and I even like some small gadgets. A little more dubious about computers, but that's probably because I'm on the wrong side of the age chasm. However, I don't like machines that talk back to you. When I turn on this cell phone, it speaks to me. It says, welcome. It doesn't welcome me. It has no feeling, despite speaking to me. I wish telephones wouldn't speak to me, and computers speak to me, and other things speak to me. I fear very soon my car is going to say, thank you for driving with me. Unnecessary. Stop speaking, machines. Do your jobs. Today we have a very interesting guest on the program. He has written an extraordinary book. I think it is one of the most interesting looks at the fabric of America. His name is Colin Woodard. He is a reporter for the uh, Portland Press Herald, a copy of which I have here. And uh, he writes, uh, actually, he's the state and national writer. Uh, titles don't really mean much. Uh, you're really the investigative reporter. Head of Primarily do a lot of investigative work, yeah. yeah. Great. But you also find time to write extraordinary books. You've written five. Uh, this one, Nations, the one we want to talk about today, American Nations, which suggests that we are not one people or four people, but there are, in fact, a whole group of American nations. Tell us about that. How many nations are we? Correct. Well, today we're 11, and the argument in the book is that, as you say, we've never been one America, but several Americas. And the primary differences between the real regional cultures in our country, which correspond to a lot of the political and ideological divides you see, are the divisions between the differences between the original colonial clusters along the eastern and southern rims of what's now the United States. Because um, New England and the Deep South and the Tidewater Zone around the Chesapeake and the, uh, the, the back country along the uh, uplands of the South were all founded by distinct groups of people who had different religious and political and ideological values and ethnography and were drawn from different parts of Britain or Europe. And the differences between the societies they were trying to create and their idea of what the American experiment was going to be are still with us today and, and inform a lot of the differences that we see played out on the uh, political well, map. We have a map up on the screen, but I'm going to read out some of these because they're quite fascinating. And, uh, and you can tell us how you came up with these names. Uh, First Nation, that's fairly obvious. The Midlands, that's quite obvious. New France, that's a little more complicated. Yankeedom, that I think I can understand. New Netherland, that you might want to explain. Tidewater, we understand. Greater Appalachia, that's interesting. Deep South, there's no little Appalachia. There's only Greater Appalachia. <laughs> or Shallow South. Uh, well, if you're going to be absolutely grammatically correct. Uh, I see you are a journalist. Um, and uh, the Far West, and finally, the Left Coast and El Norte. Uh, explain some of these to us. Sure. I mean, there, most of these, uh, particularly the, the older ones, are um, rooted in one of the colonial clusters that originally formed. So Yankeedom is the greater New England space. So each one of these, uh, these regional cultures you see on the map would play out 
like this. Like in the Yankeedom circumstance, you had the Puritans who came and settled in New England, and they expanded and absorbed the old colony of the Pilgrims and defeated the Royalist colony and annexed it in Maine and so on and so forth. And then they spread after the defeat of the Dutch uh, in, the, uh, in the 1600s. They spread into upstate New York. And there was a dispute uh, thereafter whether the um, Massachusetts would have sovereignty over upstate New York or whether the new province of New York would because all of these um, these colonies, as you probably remember from high school, each claimed a strip in theory of land, the width of their own colony, going all the way out to wherever the Pacific Ocean was. And Massachusetts had such a strip that included a great swath of upstate New York. So there's a big fight. And in the end, there was a compromise. Uh, that whole disputed swath of millions and millions of acres in upstate New York would remain with New York. But Massachusetts would have title to the land. So the reason I tell you this is Massachusetts settlers uh, and Massachusetts land companies actually settled that entire swath. And they came in large groups of people from New England, often following their congregational and Presbyterian minister, and recreated little New England-style villages with their town greens and town government and so on and so forth across this swath. Go on to the, the, the part that's dark blue on that map of Ohio. That's the Western Reserve of Ohio. That was the Western Reserve of Connecticut. It's the strip, the width of Connecticut, that extended over into the Ohio Territory. And when the Ohio Territory became independent, same thing happened. Ohio got sovereignty, but Connecticut land companies settled that whole strip of Connecticut, and it was settled by Connecticuters. So if you look in your Rand McNally Atlas or Google Maps, you'll notice a suspiciously large number of towns in the Western Reserve have the same names as towns back in Connecticut because that's where the settlers came from. Go forward another generation to when Michigan Territory was being uh, settled, and the original settlers tended to come from the Western Reserve of Ohio, the Yankee settled parts of upstate New York, or New England itself. And when they did that, they brought with them uh, the values and institutions and narratives and, and such and built the, um, you know, informed the constitutions and they were the territorial assembly, uh, you know, dominated territorial assemblies and the territorial governorships and sort of set the institutional and cultural DNA of Michigan. And then you could carry the story forward into Wisconsin and the parts that you see that are dark blue. It's about which settlement group came in first as a Euro-American colonial power and set down the assumptions about society that were sort of a fait accompli for everyone else who came later. That's the, the so, dominant so, culture they encountered when they, when they came later. So what you described as the cultural DNA, this doesn't change. New people arrive, they adopt the, the, the existing cultural DNA, Precisely. or do they modify it? Right, well, it certainly modifies. I mean, human societies and cultures are very complex, and thank goodness, but the something essential about the, the dominant culture remains. My argument is that if somebody from Mars came to the United States, their children and their grandchildren wouldn't be assimilating into America. They'd be assimilating into one of these regional cultures on the map. They themselves, you know, the original arrival might retain many of the things about their culture, but their grandchildren are probably going to have assimilated into the region around them, right down to the dialect of American English that they speak. And this doesn't alter with, with distinct differences, like we now have 17.4% of Americans are Hispanic, 12.5% uh, are African American, uh, we've got nearly 5% are Asian. Uh, they will adopt the DNA they find? Well, in some of these cases, those 
peoples are part of the story of some of these regional cultures. But yes, if you had somebody, the experience of being an immigrant or being from one of these groups coming to Yankeedom would be different from the experience that you would have coming to the Deep South. But the argument is that here in North America, just like in Europe or anywhere else where there's human civilizations, there are dominant cultures that have enormous assimilative power over the generations. And the, you know, the, the paradigm would argue that essentially those dominant cultural traits win out over two or three generations in sort of handing on the values and unexamined assumptions that we all have based on the place that we live in. So broadly speaking, yes. I'm going to take a little break for station identification, primarily for our listeners on Sirius XM Radio Channel 124, the BOTUS channel. You are listening to White House Chronicle with myself, Llewellyn King, and today our guest, the extraordinarily interesting Colin Wooded. Uh, he is a reporter in Maine at the Portland Press Herald, and he also is the author of five books, all of them intriguing. He's written about the oceans, he's written about this, uh, uh, the DNA of the country, depending on what was established when colonization took place or any other uh, thrust into the West, for example. So we're, we're seen across the country on about 200 television stations and around the world on Voice of America. So let's play a little bit and say, supposing you, uh, who lives in El Notre? Well, El Norte is the... Norte, sorry. Yeah, it's the north of... So the, the, when I went to school, at least, you were taught that, you know, American history unfolded from east to west. You know, Europeans came and landed on the east coast and manifest destiny and they pushed their way westward. Really, the oldest Euro-American culture that's now part of the United States, the first part colonized by Europeans, was the southwest of our country. It was colonized from south to north as the far-flung frontier of New Spain, of the Spanish Empire in the Americas. And it wasn't, you know, a lot of people know that Mexico or Spain controlled on paper a big chunk of the western U.S., but the part that's actually was effectively settled almost uh, is almost identical to what you see now on that map as marked as El Norte. That's the part that uh, before the U.S. annexations, New Spain settled, bringing with them their customs and ideas about government and society. So it was its formatting culture was a new Spanish one, but one very different from that in central Mexico because the extremity in that time period, in the, in the uh, early 1600s and in the 1700s, uh, of the remoteness and isolation that that part of, uh, of the Spanish Empire had from Mexico City, but certainly from Madrid, huh. was so enormous that it developed its own institutions that were very different from central and southern Mexico's. How does this affect the way we live today? For example, it's generally known that it's much easier to locate an industrial plant uh, in the south than the north, not only because of labor in the south, but also just because of getting permits if you want, for example, to put up a, uh, an oil refinery, you're going to find it very difficult anywhere uh, north of the Mason-Dixon line or further um, draw a line lower, and you still would have great difficulty. Easier in the south, easier in the Gulf. Uh, how does this play into your map of origins? Absolutely. It's because the differences that the regional cultures have, centuries standing in the idea about the appropriate role of government and also fundamental ideas about what freedom means. 
I mean, the, the sequel to American Nation's American Character is looking specifically at how this plays out in terms of the argument. Is, is freedom fundamentally the maximizing of individual sovereignty and individual freedom to act unencumbered? Or is freedom about maintaining a free society and the freedom of the community at large? Because those two agendas are actually contradictory. And the, say, in Yankeedom, where you might find a stronger regulatory environment, it's um, the assumption of the Puritans was that you're trying to create a more perfect utopian society and that the individual must stand down for the good of the community if the two things come in conflict. That's a very New England idea and a very Puritan idea that remains, that the community's freedom is preeminent and that you know, the Puritans thought that you know, humans were wicked and had to be kept in check because their natural you know, proclivities were, were nasty, so the community had to keep it harnessed, right? So regulation and having the government acting as as the people's guarantee of their freedom is the New England way. Whereas you go down to, say, the Deep South, and there was none of that. You know, the Deep South was founded out of Charleston by English planters from Barbados, and it was a very libertarian place in the sense that, you know, individual freedom should be maximized, but the assumption was that whatever, you know, original Darwinian struggle there had been, the survival of the fittest and economics, that that had played out, you know, a century before on Barbados, and the winners have arrived, and to the, you know, the winners were going to maximize their freedom. So the planter class had established themselves in such a way to maximize their own freedom to operate, even though it required subservience of most of the rest of the white population and a slave system, which um, undergridded. So the idea was a minimum government. It was a classical republicanism that they espoused, uh, modeled on uh, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, which were slave states where a small elite had the privilege of practicing democracy, and slavery and subservience was the natural lot of the many. And so government was supposed to remain weak so as not to encumber uh, the privileges of the, the, the elite in society. So you had a very different model in the Deep South from the beginning, from Yankeedom, that today you roll, you know, 300 and 400 years later, you can still feel it, like you say, in the regulatory environment and the attitude towards, you know, whether or not, you know, an oil refinery, how, mu how much of the surrounding communities' concerns of the surrounding neighbors should play into the oil refinery. It's a very different discussion about, you know, what makes sense and what freedom's about. How does this affect our politics? Well, enormously, because we live in a federation with all of these disparate regional cultures, and there's no consensus between them on the fundamental questions. If you went to France or Germany, you know, there's a Japan, there's generally a consensus on the big things, on what freedom means and what the role of government is, more or less. I mean, not everyone agrees with it, but there's a broad-based consensus. We've never had that in the United States because we're a federation of a bunch of regional cultures with completely different ideas. And we don't, what, what's unhelpful, and one of the things that I hope the book is contributing to is, is most people don't realize that when somebody talks about freedom in greater Appalachia or the Deep South and are meaning maximizing individual freedom, that they're saying a very different thing than when somebody's talking about maintaining freedom in Yankeedom. And that means that the conversation is going nowhere because people don't even understand what they're disagreeing about. So this and is trying to provide some of the, the, the context to overcome our historical amnesia so hopefully we can move forward on these things. Politicians, I think, divide the nation into four. Uh, the North, the Midwest, the West, and the South. But that's not a very accurate uh, 
division. Especially since they use state lines, which completely messes everything up because the flow of people and the ethnographic settlement did not tend to follow state lines. So, you know, you have states like Ohio that are riven into, they're basically three tiers. There's a, a New England settled Western Reserve northern tier. There's a southern tier along the Ohio River that was settled through Greater Appalachia and down the Ohio River from Kentucky and, and uh, what's now West Virginia. And in the middle, there's this zone that's uh, I call the Midlands, which has its anchor in the uh, Quaker experiment on the shores of Delaware Bay that from the beginning was multi-ethnic, a mosaic, like the idea was that people from any culture can come and settle side by side, they can build their own towns, maintain their own language, and that was fine. There was no dominant culture was the whole idea because the Quakers thought that you know, humans had an inner light and were inherently good, so there weren't those kind of restrictions. They had an enormously open immigration policy for the time period. So that zone has always, in between, is sort of this transition zone that's both skeptical of government, the Quakers were skeptical of government, and many of the German settlers and Pietists and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Amish and others who came to the Midland zone were also leaving tyrannical governments in Europe. So there's skepticism of government in a way that Yankees don't have, but it's also got that strong communitarian ethos where it's really sort of the neighborly health of the community takes precedence in most of the political dialogue. So look at Ohio then, you have a swing state with enormous divisions uh, top to bottom. And that's the reason why Ohio is kind of a cliffhanger is that it has those properties. So do most of the other swing states on the uh, national electoral map. Now you've evolved or you've moved on from this theory to your new book, American Character, uh, which explains how the character has originated from these beginnings. Right, the goal of the, the, so the American Nations talks about the divisions in our country and how it informs our history and our current politics and everything else. But American Character asks, well, what is it we've been fighting over? And it unpacks the real elemental struggle. Well, we have a is, copy of the book here. Let me, excuse me. Yeah, let me get hold of it and hold it up. We'll also put it on the screen, but there it is. Uh, and it's the companion to this one. So read this one first. And that one second, but buy them both at the same time. He's got a new baby and he needs the money. Um, you do have a new baby. Indeed. Congratulations. Yes, thank you very much. And what ethnic cultural imprint will he get from being born in Maine? <laughs> well, we live in Maine, so we are surrounded by the Yankee ethos. And as an individual, our children may choose a different path. They may like or dislike the Yankee uh, emphasis, but it's going to be there. So, um, you know, a lot of people may decide when they move to move somewhere where they feel like everyone agrees with them. And that's why you see a lot of sorting in the country um, it, where people tend to be moving to places where people share their political views when they move, which is why the polarization increases. And your book is called American Character. Uh, is there a unified American character, or are there these 11 different characters? There are the 11 different characters. American characters asking about the struggle over freedom, about what the character of the country should be. In other words, it's the war for defining the American character, a scrum between these 11 nations. And it's the story of that struggle seen primarily is freedom when, when individual liberty and the common good come into conflict. On which side do you err? And there is a spectrum that has tyrannical extremes in both directions. And there's, say, free every society 
liberal democracy is about maintaining a balance between those two essential forces. This is the story of our struggle, our missteps in both directions, and perhaps an argument given the divides that you see in the American nation's map of how we might again build a governing supermajority so we can function. This is not an easy subject to get your arms around. It's a fascinating subject, but not easy, I don't think. How did you do it? You must have traveled extensively in the country trying to yeah. uh, take the temperature, analyze the people, get to find five, uh, 11 nations and then the character that came from 11 nations. Well, what simplified it a lot and gave me focus is taking the historical approach where I knew that this was more or less true and had a sense of the boundaries, but instead of trying to impose them on the map today, I just went back to the beginning of settlement history and looked at the original settlements and then unrolled the history and watched how the Puritan colonies expanded and read what their ideologies were and how they changed and where they went next. And the same thing with the Tidewater Zone and the Deep Southern one, and actually just let the story roll out from there and watched as the settlement shifted around and read what they themselves said about their concerns about individual liberty or the common good or the role of government or the, or the relationship between church and state. So I let history do the telling and then ended up with the map at the end, which I was surprised how well it accorded with what people today think about their own states. I was giving a speech and I used your book and your map and people were absolutely fascinated. Uh, they asked me where they could get it. There was a speech down in Washington. Um, and, but they were absolutely fascinated. And they, they asked me questions that I didn't have the answer to. You have the answer. Uh, but I was terribly interested in the response of people and, and how it sort of suddenly got their minds going, oh, wow, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, it's right in front of my very eyes, and it hadn't occurred to me. Uh, have you had that same reaction? I have. I, uh, that was my great hope in writing the book, is that people would react that way. And I've been very in encouraged that many people have. People write me you know, almost a daily basis. I get emails from people who say that I live in such and such a part of the country, and you know, you've hit it just right uh, you know, on the divisions that we see. And suddenly, this explains a lot about my own family or whatever. But you, so also, you also see the, the culture, the, the 11 nation culture, playing out in things like gun control. Oh, absolutely. And that's a classic individual liberty versus common good policy argument, too. And you see it highly polarized opinion along the same lines as the American nation's map. That's very interesting. Did you think about that when you came to write the book? Were you thinking of particularly permanent controversies that we have in this country? And did you look at those permanent controversies, gun control, one of the foremost of them? I actually later looked at gun control for a magazine piece for Tufts magazine that um, ended up that the map from it, which is the map you're looking at, they colorized my, my grayscale map from my book, and it then went viral on the internet. But that, that magazine article was taking sort of American nations as an operating system and running a new research question through it, which was about the differences in violence rates and attitudes towards gun control on a regional basis. And a lot of scholars have done work showing a lot of the parts of this. They don't have my map, but there's all of this data already out there um, showing great differences between the regions on almost any metric. American Character is a new book, but uh, this has been out for a while, American Nations. And uh, 
how's it selling? Oh, it's doing very well, I'm happy to say. I mean, they say that the mid-list author is, has died, but this is one of those books that has, uh, has, has done otherwise. Uh, it continues to keep getting attention and uh, keep being pulled into newspaper coverage and, and ask, I'm asked to speak at conferences, and it seems to just keep having a momentum of its own because more and more people encounter it and respond to it, and the differences and divides and polarization in the country are continuing to get worse, it seems, on a monthly basis. So people are looking for answers, and I, I think that this is helping provide some. How do you look through your lens at the current election? What do you see in the, in the 11 nations? How do you see that playing out in the current election? Well, it's definitely going to play out. I mean, when voters in the general election are they're given a choice um, between two candidates. So which two candidates those are will greatly change a given candidate's prospects. You kind of need to know the matchup to really imagine the general election map. But yeah, there's, you, you can count on say Bernie Sanders, that his strength of support, certainly in the general election when you have the entire uh, electorate, it's, he might have, you know, be competitive in somewhere like Yankeedom or even the Midlands where that's that communitarian ethos that would have reasonable comfort with somebody advocating social democracy, possibly the left coast, but all those other regions with a much more individual freedom um, ethos that goes back for centuries, it's going to be a very difficult sell there. So it's an it's a it's a isolating factor. He's running up against um, deep-held um, political cultures in other regions of the country. That's why we haven't had a social democracy in the United States, whereas most of our peer nations in Western Europe have done so. Is because nobody many of our has regional ever are, explained yeah. that to me. I've been asking that question for 53 years, and nobody has ever explained it to me why we haven't had a right. strong social democratic movement, as every right. other advanced country does have. Because there's this, I mean, the American experiment was born, you know, via John Locke and such, was a was a, uh, a, a an effort to try, have individual rights triumph in a way that they hadn't been able to in feudal Europe, and many of the regional cultures have strong libertarian individualist um, leanings. Greater Appalachia, which is actually the most populous today and one of the largest, it was founded primarily by by Scots-Irish uh, settlers uh, from the lowlands of Scotland or from Ulster who you came can see in that in their music. numbers. You can see it in their music and in their dialect, and they spread over a vast region much greater than Appalachia itself, the, you know, the southern tiers of the Midwestern states, onto the Texas Hill Country and the Ozarks, and that is a culture that is profoundly about individual freedom and personal autonomy and greatly distrustful of government and the concentration of power, even to the point where the existence of an orderly and efficient government is itself considered a threat to freedom. Now, if you've got a huge block of your country, of, of, of your federation that believes that, it makes it almost impossible to move forward with a social democratic agenda because you have great regions to which that is anathema, that is against freedom. And that's not the case in most of Western Europe. They don't have those same um, countervailing forces. Even Canada. Canada doesn't have any portions of Greater Appalachia or the Deep South or Tidewater in it. It has the Far West. That's where you know Stephen Harper and his Reform Party. You know, the Alberta is called you know the the Texas of Canada because the Far West is the only libertarian piece they have. They're a federation with a completely different mix, and lo and behold, they have much more of a uh, stronger social welfare state and a communitarian ethos than we do. 
because some of the big libertarian nations aren't in their mix. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, we would like to thank the Portland Press Herald for the use of their studio in my interview with uh, Colin Woodward, an extraordinary thinker and author who is also on the staff of that newspaper. We will see you again on the same stations next week. Until then, keep well. Cheers.